0: the hospitals are absolutely still in a crisis mode and it's because this testing
1: is always ahead of how covid manifests by maybe a week or two for you know a significant portion you know money was not the issue their thing was you know i just want to make sure when i'm gone that my grandkids go to school that there's some apparatus for them to get support and that sort of thing
2: yeah you do have people who are like well i don't see it If I see it, I'm going to buy like six of them. Well, if you do that, you're not really helping your neighbor. (laughs) So you may not want to pick up seven pieces of, you know, cream cheese.
3: You're listening to Pod Suey, the week's top stories served a la carte. Subscribe at thegreatvoice.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Rescue teams have found what is believed to be the body of missing college student Brendan Santo in the Red Cedar River in East Lansing. Santo, a student at Grand Valley State University, was visiting friends on Michigan State's Campus when he went missing in late October. Rup Raj was heading up to East Lansing to cover the story for Fox 2 News when he checked in with Marie Osborne.
4: Some sad news uh, seemingly coming uh, right to the Santo family right now. You know, there's no confirmation of his ID, but at this point, as you say, the body of uh, a young person found in that river that has been really, you know, Marie, the source of, of, uh, of, of so much um, scrutiny as divers and searchers have been looking there for so many weeks. And now we know, of course, that uh, they did find a body today. So uh, his family, obviously, as you say, had been holding out hope for some time.
0: Tell us a little bit about his family.
4: Well, you know, Brad and Wendy Santo, um, this has been their mission since October 29th to find their son. Uh, As any parent's worst nightmare, of course, it seems as though uh, that search has come to an end. But I had the chance to talk to both Brad and Wendy on December 17th. Uh, just before Christmas and um, reached out to them and said, look, you know, here we are at that point before Christmas time. I said, eh, if we could just jog people's memories and, and maybe do something to, to help find this young man, then perhaps they would want to. And they agreed to do the interview. One of the main things they said is, look, you know, we're still holding out hope. And that was, again, uh, weeks ago, almost a, month, a little over a month ago now, when they said, we're hoping that people will look at their, their phones. And, you know, we're hoping that people will look at their social media accounts. That was a busy weekend. That was the weekend of the University of Michigan game. And this Grand Valley State University student was visiting friends. Uh, The parents told me, Brad and Wendy, that he wasn't even at a party. You know, there's been, you know, people who don't understand the full, you know, storyline will imagine that he was, you know, partying in one dorm and going to another. He was actually just kind of getting to East Lansing, visiting friends in one dorm, and was heading over to another dorm at Yakely Hall, uh, and he was heading over there in order to spend the night so he could wake up the next day and enjoy the game and then a Halloween party. He says, you know, they said at some point during that walk, uh, you know, things went dark. They The cell phone, they couldn't quite, you know, the, the police couldn't track at that point where he went, and what happened, uh, and so they were concerned, but they, they figured if they talked to us, that maybe you would jog someone's memory of what they saw on social media, uh, and they did get a lot of tips, by the way. The tip line was filling up, but... Nothing, obviously, that was uh, concrete.
0: This was one of the things that just truly um, befuddled me about this case, and I'm sure the investigators as well, was that in this day and age where nothing escapes a cell phone video, it seems, or security video, here we have just this little snip of him, I think, either going or coming uh, uh, to that uh uh, hall that he was uh, going yeah. to, walking uh, uh, to Yakeley Hall, and that was it. Nothing else. Nobody seemed to have been talking to him, which, you know what, that also goes to the, the, the point of the parents saying, you know, he really wasn't there to go to a party because if he'd been up to a party, a lot of people would have seen him, right? But I just That's always exactly, found yeah. that so baffling that we just, there was nothing ever concrete about what happened to him.
4: You know, you, you, you make a really good point. and And this day, as is, is you say, when we can all be easily tracked by the last tweet or the last Instagram or, you know, a lot of the young people on, uh, mm-hmm. on their various social media apps like TikTok, um, exactly, I think, yeah. you know, th- they had said something that he had sent uh, something on one of those social media channels just moments before everything went dark, you know, indicating that he was heading over to the hall. So he had every intention of heading over there. I think and Brad and Wendy told me that he even had, you know, his costume packed for the Halloween weekend so he could actually attend a party the following day. Uh, and and that never came. Now, to your point, you know, about the video cameras, there was one camera that apparently wasn't working on the campus of Michigan State University that could have caught somewhat of this this, you know, commute from one dorm to another, but that camera wasn't live. It wasn't able to record uh, what was happening in front of it. So I don't know if that would have uh, helped or not but at this point you know one of the big struggles was that that re- that river uh it's 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 a it's a it's a, it's a tough river and a, at mm-hmm. any time as you know you know the water's moving quickly there was there was points where they they said they couldn't get into a certain part of the river to search because it was so deep and the currents were so um swift and so that was an issue too and and i think when they were able to get into some of those areas that they hadn't gone to before Uh, is when they made this discovery today around 1230 this afternoon.
3: The University of Michigan agreed to a $490 million settlement with over a 1,000 alleged victims of sexual abuse at the hands of former athletic Dr. Robert Anderson. Jamie White, founding attorney for White Law PLLC, represents many of the accusers and he spoke to Guy Gordon. This is the
5: largest settlement ever by an American university in terms of uh, settling allegations of sexual abuse. What does it mean for the victims? What will this settlement provide for them?
1: Well, it provides some level of closure. As you indicated, these gentlemen were very young uh, and they were dropped off on the campus of Ann Arbor. And I used dropped off in a very deliberate way because many of them were 17, 18 year old African-American men, you know, at the time the university had maybe a 2% African-American population. Times were very different and they were under extraordinary pressure to follow rules and abide and but they have grown up they're older men and you know I could tell you that you know not not all of them but for you know a significant portion you know money was not the issue a significant portion that came forward guy where you know they truly just wanted to be a part of the conversation and you know yeah you know I talked to several men you know a couple of years ago when this all started and you know their thing was you know I just want to make sure when I'm gone that my grandkids go to school, that there's some apparatus for them to get yeah. support and that sort of thing.
5: Yeah, it, it was about legacy and accountability, and I think that is a noble thing. Um, this agreement must be approved by 98% of the claimants. It That's also correct. must be... Yep approved by the the board of regents and they're going to do that apparently in the in a february meeting and i think that's a foregone conclusion but do you see any hang-ups with getting this uh formally resolved and uh formally closed
1: i I do not there's always outliers you know i suppose to put it politely but i could tell you speaking from my victim group which is significant um you know they're very grateful to have this over with and um you know to continue being michigan men and that's what's really unique about this case, you know, I, doing the Nasser case and doing the Boy Scouts, you know, there was a lot of hate towards the um, participants in the university. You know, these guys almost laid out rules like don't, don't say this, don't go after Bo, don't do this, don't do that. That was my experience, and I found that admirable. You know, they really um, loved the university, but they wanted them held accountable.
5: I know that there are folks that are going to hear this amount and get out their calculators. We know that at Penn State, Jerry Sandusky's two dozen victims split $60 million, getting about $2.5 million apiece. Um, it looks like for if you were to split it evenly, uh, Dr. Anderson's victims will get something in the neighborhood of $490,000 or somewhere in that range. Do It, it appears to be a, a smaller settlement for, at least on the scale of abuse, something that was just as bad.
1: Yeah, you know that's it's it's an important um, conversation to be had, you know, especially as we go forward. You know, the problem is, for one, you know, this is so the Catholic Church cases we haven't had them in Michigan because Michigan law doesn't allow it. Now we're working on that, but when you look around the country at people who are in a similar victim group. You know, um abuse as a child, men older, um, you know, this is similar to what we've seen in a lot of the church cases and like we're working through the Boy Scout cases where those numbers seem to be similar as well. Um, you know, there's some disparities there. I, I can't argue with that. We're not happy about that. Um, but there's a practical consideration, you know, this is a public mm-hmm. university and you know, with a thousand people, you know, to uh, to uh, get them to the same amount of money that the NASA victims received. Um, becomes difficult and you know on the other and then the other side of this guy is that you know these men are getting older you know we've already had a few people pass away and we're working with their estates now so you know it was time to get this done um, again they weren't truly out for the money I mean a lot of these men are very accomplished they just wanted some accountability so um, I understand your point and it's an important one to talk about but at the end of the day I, I think they're comfortable with where
3: this landed. Metro Detroit has seen a spike in freeway shootings with 12 unrelated incidents in the past three weeks. In the year 2021, there was an average of two shootings every month in the Tri-County area. Senior news analyst Lloyd Jackson talked to Lieutenant Mike Shaw from the Michigan State Police, and he asked him what's behind the dramatic increase.
6: You know, it's kind of tough to figure out. I think it's going to take uh, some scholars out there to really look into a lot of the numbers and the data to, to figure out exactly why it went that way. But it's not just the freeways. Uh, we, we've seen it everywhere, this you know, violence that we've seen across the country, you know, not here just in Michigan. Or you know a lot of people will say, oh, it's a Detroit problem, and, and that's not the case either. Um, we've seen it everywhere. So it's going to be pretty, a pretty long while, I think, before people kind of look into it and see exactly what the cause is.
7: Lieutenant Shaw says uh, there was a time that if you get upset with a fellow driver on the freeway, you just flip him or her the bird and you just keep on moving. He says that's not so much the case anymore.
6: Now it's just violent crime, um, violent gun crime that we're seeing that's taken place. Uh, the last two incidents we've had here in 22, uh, one in Oakland County was because of a domestic squabble between uh, a female and, and two other male drivers. Uh, involved in the shooting. And then the one we're currently working in Wayne County um, has a narcotics nexus to it.
7: Michigan state police work closely with Detroit police because many times a beef starts at a business or in a neighborhood and ends with a shooting on a freeway. Some Detroit businesses and gas stations have opted into the operation green light program, installing high definition cameras that help in solving crime. Detroit chief of police, James white would like to see those high definition cameras on the freeways. How does Lieutenant Shaw feel about that?
6: We're kind of supportive of the chief and his effort. If he can get that done, um, but that's after the fact, and that's the big thing that we're seeing a lot of, be it, you know, our children getting killed in their homes by a gun owned by their parents. Um, you know, these are all after-the-fact issues. We've we got to kind of go back to the root cause of these issues, and, and it, it's gun violence. We need to get the community to come forward and say, you know what, enough is enough. If you're going to do stuff like this, we're going to tell on you. We're going to call the cops. We're going to get involved to try to bring this to an end and not have to worry about cameras on the freeways because we're eliminating that process at the very beginning before it actually happens.
7: Now, a shooting anywhere can be scary, it can be dangerous, sometimes even deadly. But I asked Lieutenant Shaw,
6: what makes a freeway shooting even more troublesome for a motorist? You can avoid certain crime areas. So if people think, well, Detroit is full of gun crime, I'll just avoid the city of Detroit and I'll be fine. You can't avoid the freeway. Uh, the freeway gets you from a to b it gets you from you know west bloomfield to comerica park it gets you from the casino up to the up Um, there's places that go there so more people are affected by that thinking that there's something going on the freeway systems and that's some place that they can't avoid
7: lieutenant shaw says there are several reasons why a shooting might take place on a freeway road rage domestic violence drugs some even say that COVID fatigue may be a reason.
6: Everybody's not shooting at everybody, and we're all affected by the pandemic. There's only certain people that are doing that. So I, I'm i not quite convinced that, you know, the pandemic is the only reason this is happening. Um, we'll see. I guess we'll have to wait until we're finally out of the woods with the pandemic to see if things go down. Um, but I'm not kind of buying that story.
7: Now, Lieutenant Shaw says state police solve about 65 to 70 percent of the fatal shootings on the freeways. The ones that are hard to solve, he says, are the ones where nobody wants to talk or get involved. He says if you're in a vehicle and you're carrying a gun, this is what you should know.
6: Um, if you're carrying it with you and you're doing everything that you're supposed to be doing, uh, you're good to go. You don't have to worry about it. Um, if you get involved in an altercation with somebody uh, and you point that firearm at somebody, CPL holder or not, you're probably going to go to jail and you're probably going to lose the right to carry that gun. Uh, if you're illegally carrying it, don't. Don't carry that gun unless you have a CPL.
7: Guy, uh, bottom line, he says, you know, people need to get involved when they see these uh, shootings on the freeway and, you know, let someone know uh, what's going on. He can, They can solve them better. And a lot of times he says people will come forward, but they may come forward two or three days later after that. You mm-hmm. know, the evidence is gone. It's hard to go and try to recreate. It's, it's a mess, but, you know, you just got to be careful and uh, make sure you're on the lookout and you're carrying that gun. If you're carrying one, that you're doing it legally because he says they won't hesitate to take you in.
3: Some promising news on the COVID front. Numbers seem to be receding in a few major cities. Hospitals are reporting a slight easing in capacity. And out in Macomb County, they have a very interesting way of predicting what the virus will do next. Sewer testing. Macomb County Public Works Commissioner Candace Miller with Paul W. Smith. We
0: test actually in seven different zones across Clinton Township, and we use Clinton Township uh, because uh, it, it's generally been a very good uh, barometer, advanced barometer of what the infections, the COVID infections are happening in Macomb County. Uh, the demographics are diverse. Uh, it's got a population of over 100,000 people. But anyway... Uh, We showed uh, as we've been doing this testing, we had a, you know, really the COVID, of course, like everywhere, really spiked dramatically in in late December in particular. The highest uh, spike we had was on the 28th of December. But now I'm happy to report that as we've been pulling samples, and we pulled them uh, in the new year here on January 4th, then on the 9th, and then we just did another one on the 11th uh we're really showing a a really sharp decline in fact if you look at our graphs it looks like the numbers are falling off a cliff uh really a significant decline so you know all we do is do our testing and then we report our findings uh to the macomb county health department and uh we're not docs over here so we totally leave it up to the healthcare professionals but it is another tool uh and they can use that uh in their prediction modeling so uh Maybe a bit of uh, optimistic good news here this morning.
8: Hopefully, well, we appreciate you being the bearer of what appears to be good news, but you know, uh, Candace, whenever we talk about this, it it, it kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies, and I'll tell you why. You are talking about finding the virus COVID in your in your water. The uh,
0: the sewage, the not sewage, the water. Right. Not in the water. The, well,
8: but uh, here's where <laughs> yeah. I'm headed. Here's where I'm yeah. headed. In the sewage, you're, you're monitoring, and thank God there's, there's less of it, which is uh, an indication, maybe the first real indication that we're moving in the right direction. But here's the thing I always think about. There's a reason we were told starting a few years ago not to flush our prescription drugs down the toilet. And the reason was, the prescription drugs, and many of the drugs of today, made it through that sewage, made it through all of that treatment, and was showing up in our drinking water. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Well, that worries me, because you're finding the virus in our drinking water. I mean, no in their sewage but what's to keep it from making it to the drinking water like those prescription drugs did even after treatment
0: really two different things so let me be very very clear we're not doing anything with the water there's no covid in the water your water is fine drink the water we're only talking about wastewater, okay sewage right and uh not to be gross here this morning. Hey, but we're all biological beings. It's really no different than a blood test, right? That's why you have to give samples at the doc's office. But uh, I just think these numbers are, are good. And, you know, I, I always want to preface anything I'm I'm saying here by stating the obvious, I'm not a doc, not a healthcare care professional. Uh, but, you know, I looked at these numbers, really just sort of a personal observation, I guess, I'm reading all this, that, you know, in the past couple of weeks, we've seen these COVID cases really falling rapidly in, uh, out in the uh, northeast, Connecticut, Maryland, New Jersey, New York, and then some of the other states have begun to see a, a decline. So hopefully these test results, I think, from Clinton uh, Township are really an indicator of uh, what's coming in our area. But well, here's another
8: you, thing. You, I'm sorry?
0: I was just going to say, the hospitals are still in a crisis mode. You know, the the docs that might be listening to this this morning going, geez, what is she talking about? Yeah, to take a look in our ER. But, you know, the hospitals are absolutely still in a crisis mode. And it's because this testing is always ahead of how COVID manifests by maybe a week or two. So, uh, uh, you know, I don't, uh, I sit on the hospital board. Believe me, I know what's going on in the hospitals. I, I just feel so bad for our healthcare workers.
3: You may remember the great toilet paper shortage of 2020 at the beginning of the COVID 19 pandemic. If it seems like you're having a hard time finding certain items at the store or store shelves are a little bit emptier than they normally are, you'd be right. Jennifer Rook is the vice president of communications and marketing for the Michigan Retailers Association. And she tells Tom Jordan and Kevin Deese what's going on.
2: I could tell you that what you're seeing, and it is affecting different categories, but overall, this is just a continuation of what's been happening over the past two years. When you think about supply chain, you got to think of it as a big ship with a small rudder. There's a lot of pieces that are playing into this. Yes, labor shortages are playing an issue. Yes, things are getting held up in Long Beach and in other ports, Um those are all just it's a great it's you're just seeing the impact of it all and you have your retailers small to large where you put the orders in yet what they're receiving may not be what they ordered so there might be a lag there and it's because your raw materials are trying to catch up everybody along the supply chain is trying to catch up and it doesn't help when variants come into play like Omicron people go out sick you see still need those people to process meats. You still need those people to, you know, package your corn, all of it. So if those people are missing, it just slows everything down. Now, unilaterally, every retailer across the state of Michigan, there's still food. It's going to take a little longer. And I think all of us are used to the overnight deliveries. When I want it, you know, I can get DoorDash and the food is right at my table, When we see an empty shelf or if we see something missing, automatically we're like, why isn't it there? So our expectations are a lot different. So as we're telling people, you know, it's there. You have to, if your plan A is not there, you might have to switch to a different brand. Or you might have to make a few more trips. Or you may have to call the store ahead of time, whether it be a large retailer or a smaller retailer. You're going to have to take these extra steps. When is this ending? Oh, well, it's going to be a while. Probably through, you know, at least the second quarter of the year.
5: So some things we're able to get, some things we're not able to get. Is it because some things are made overseas and some are domestic? Is it because materials for packaging might be made overseas and uh, domestic uh, uh, producers aren't able to get the packaging? Is it is it just a, a variety of multiple different
7: things?
2: I think you're right. It is a variety of different things. Packaging, absolutely. If the packaging isn't made in the U.S. and it's coming from overseas, it's going to take some time. Um, producers, especially wherever the the variant is hitting most. So, say the hit the variant's really strong in Colorado, and say, you know, your get your meat processing plants are closed for whatever reason, or there's there's less workers. Well, it's going to slow down that production. So your raw materials, you know, are are impacted as well as packaging, costs, you know, cost of things is, is is growing because this is, again, the effects of, um, of COVID-19, whatever variant you want to throw in there. Um, all of these things are having an impact, and you're seeing it on the store shelves. Uh, but you know, what is happening... Yeah. Yes, please go ahead.
8: Well, I was just going to say, you know, we hear so much about certain products like toilet paper and hand sanitizer. Those are kind of the the poster products, if you will, of the supply chain crisis. And, and then there was the great cream cheese shortage of December 2021. And over, it's still happening, I think. Do you find, though, that there are certain products that stores are struggling to put on the shelves more than other products?
2: I Right now, that's hard to say uh, because of the fact that, your retailers are doing the very best they can to stay on top of these things. And here's what happens. If people hear, Oh, the store shelf is missing. I'm going to buy more than I need. Then all of a sudden you find a shortage there. Uh, that's no different than, you know, if a crop dies like the orange crop right now, the orange crop is, we may not have as many oranges coming up this, this for the winter season. You could blame that on, the weather, you can bring, blame that on not enough people in the fields picking the oranges. But that's the latest latest item that might be a little harder to get coming up. Um, but in a, everyone in the for all these retailers are really trying to work with their suppliers, with their vendors, to make sure the products are on the shelves. Yet you do have people who are like, well, I don't see it. If I see it, I'm going to buy like six of them. Well. If you do that, you're not really helping your neighbor uh, mm-hmm. pick up what they need. So you may not want to pick up seven pieces of, you know, cream cheese, although we're past the holidays now and, you know, people <laughs> need to dial back the cream cheese. Uh, so maybe just one, if they picked up just one instead of five.
3: They'll do it for Sui this week. For full interviews or anything else you might have missed, go to thegreatvoice.com. See you next time.